summarize it. To summarize the question, um, to what extent are we supposed to look at Hamor and Shechem and the men who are willing to be circumcised as true believers when we know that only faith in Jesus Christ, even in the Old Testament, anticipating the coming death and resurrection of Christ, that's the only means of salvation. Well, the circumcision would have been an evidence or manifestation of their faith in Christ. And Jacob, not Simeon and Levi, but Jacob would have had the correct perspective and whatever they taught in conjunction with circumcision would have been anticipatory, telling them that we believe in Jesus Christ, I, Jacob, believe in Jesus Christ, and you must believe, and the evidence of it is that you are initiated by circumcision and then live a life of faith in Christ, which would be comparable to our baptism or immersion. When one is immersed, like with John the Baptist, he expected them to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Luke 3, 7 to 14. That means they profess faith in Christ, they come to be immersed by John, and then John expects them to live a life of holiness after that. But John is also preaching Jesus Christ. John 1, 29, he, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is preaching the death and resurrection of Christ to the crowds coming to him to be immersed. John was doing so. In the same way, I think Jacob was doing so. And therefore, the manifestation of their faith would have been their willingness to be circumcised. In the case of their, his sons, let me, this is not your question, but let me say, in the case of Simeon and Levi, and I think the rest of the brothers, I highly doubt that they were believers at that time. I highly doubt that Simeon and Levi were believers in Genesis 34. Even in Genesis 37, when the rest of the brothers were willing to sell, well, actually first to murder their own brother, but after they decided not to do that, to sell him as a slave to Egypt, right? Well, they did that, but we know from the case of Genesis 39 onward that Joseph was a man of faith. He was only 17. His brothers all were older than he, except Benjamin. They all were older than he, except Benjamin. But they were so wicked, they were willing to do that to their own brother. And their faith was not manifested until Genesis 45. Why is it in Genesis when Joseph is ruler, his brothers don't know he is the ruler, that he is testing them. Why is it? And he even explicitly tells them that he is testing them to see if they are honest men. Because he knew them to be dishonest men. Throughout his life, now he is, by the time his brothers meet him, he's about... 39 years old when he reveals his identity to them in Genesis 45. And he says five years more, there's going to be famine. So from age 17 to 39, at some point then, his brothers truly believed. And by chapter 45, he is convinced by their honesty, their integrity, 
that they are believers. That's when he reveals himself to them. That means back in Genesis 34, Jacob was acting in good faith. Hamor and Shechem were acting in good faith, not in the faith, but willing to embrace the faith, but not Simeon and Levi, at least those two, if not the rest of the brothers. I don't think they were believers. That's why their sins are so egregious in chapters 34 and 37. And Joseph needs to test their honesty whenever they unwittingly meet him in Egypt. And just further clarification, they, uh, they're also talking about uh, uh, Hamor and uh, Shrekin, uh, the fact that they're self-seeking, there's a little bit of greed and, and covenant, covenant, um, wanting to be circumcised, they think they can benefit from yoking themselves. Uh, that's sh showing that they're wanting to go along with professing the faith as long as it's beneficial to them, but it's not the true faith. Yes. Okay, in the case of Hamor and Shechem and the men of the city, they were willing to gain prosperity with this arrangement willing to gain, and that shows a bit of, of covetousness, selfishness in it. Yes, that's true. If, if we look at it in the negative way, that would be one aspect of their selfishness. Um, however, if someone initially professes faith and you're trying to make the best of the situation, it's better to... and. Um, to deal with that arrangement than to deal with somebody who is disagreeable completely. In Shechem's case, he wasn't disagreeable. He was very, very, very agreeable. More agreeable than the average young man would be to marry a young woman that he has wronged. If we assume he was completely in the wrong, if he was completely in the wrong and she was not, Many young men would not do what Shechem did. Unbelievers. Let alone professing believers. But in this case, he was willing. So even if his conversion was pretentious, it was a lot better than the average young man. And they're also having to convince the other men of the city to do this as well. And that's part of uh, sweetening the pot for them as far as uh, getting them to get circumcised, there, are, there is a benefit financially. We'll be able to trade with them and interact with them. Right. So he is also having to convince others of why they should do this as well. Yes, so he did convince others because he was respected by the others. That, that's showing his initiative, you mean? Well, his initiative and uh, the other men may or may not have been sincere, like Shechem. So the financial aspect would be a, at least a benefit for them to get circumcised. Yeah. Right? Because the whole city has to do it. Shechem is willing to do it, but all the other men have to do it as well. And so they have to convince the other men to do it. And this is one of the benefits of doing this, 
is we'll have access to their wealth. And it'll, it'll be beneficial to all of us. Okay, are you putting a better light on this proposal? Okay, if we take it in that way, that's also valid because the text doesn't explicitly condemn the thought that if we do this, if we have this arrangement of intermarriage, then it's going to benefit everybody. Because it benefiting everybody is not necessarily an evil thing. Because we all need to have some level of sustainability for our families. We all need to do that. Right, and and obviously it's going to benefit Shechem because he's getting a wife, but we're all having to do this together, so what are we getting out of it? Yes, yes, and actually not only will they initially gain wealth, but they will also gain sons and daughters. Because it says in 21, let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. It's reciprocal. In the future, right now, Shechem's marriage is in view, but in the future, a lot of marriages are going to be in view. So it does have a a sense of convincing the others that they're going to have to go through a painful process, but not just to benefit Shechem. It's also going to benefit them. Yes. And that's not necessarily an evil thing. It's not necessarily evil, especially because... Scripture does not identify their desire as evil. It's putting the blame clearly on Simeon and Levi by the end of the chapter. Clearly on that, but also that Shechem should not have humbled or defiled Dina. So those are the two main um, sins mentioned in the chapter. Of course, Simeon and Levi deceitfully say we're in agreement and then they, it leads to their massacre. But those are the two main sins. The other things here, the text doesn't cl- clearly say that the other parts of the negotiation or the intentions, whether of Hamor, Shechem, the men of the city, Jacob, that they were all sin. doesn't say that at all. If we also assume that considering the fact that in the negotiations, Jacob would have preach the gospel to them, telling them why they would need to be circumcised, as you described, which also would have included you would only worship the one true God. So when he went to convince the men in the city, he would have also, if he was sincere, have preached the same gospel, and they would have been willing to give up all of their false gods and go be circumcised. Yes, yes, to expand... There was a lot going on there that knowing Jacob's faith and that he would have proclaimed the true gospel, then it, it would have had a lot of implications to their life and the way they lived their life, that they had to give up their false gods, they had to be circumcised, and they had to worship the one true God. Yes, let's elaborate on that point that Jacob, though the text is only mentioning circumcision, that there were more implications to that. Even though it doesn't say Jacob preached the gospel, he certainly would have preached the gospel in order to make this kind of an arrangement. Let's look at two examples. Two examples of this. Does the text of Scripture in Genesis 5, 21 to 24, say that Enoch preached the gospel in the day of judgment in relation to the gospel? Genesis 5, 21 to 25 does not say Enoch did so. But Jude tells us 
in Jude, verse 14, 14 and 15, he tells us what Enoch preached. Jude 14, And about these also, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He preached this. He's preaching the return of Christ and the day of judgment. If he's preaching the return of Christ, well, what about the first coming of Christ? When what's Christ accomplishing in his first coming? The Lord, it says in verse 14, is the Lord Jesus, according to verse 4. Our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord of Jude 14 is the Lord Jesus. So if Enoch is preaching the Lord Jesus' second coming, he must have preached the Lord Jesus' first coming. In harmony with the book of Galatians, chapters 1 and 3, that say, Abraham believed in the one gospel that we believe. He anticipated the coming death and resurrection of Christ. Genesis 5 doesn't tell us Enoch preached. But why is it far-fetched to believe that Enoch preached? He certainly would have preached the true gospel. Jude confirms that he did. Another example is 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. While you're finding 2 Peter 2 verse 5, in the book of Genesis chapters 6 to 9, does it say that Noah preached the gospel? Does it say he preached it all? No. It speaks of his righteousness and it speaks of his building the ark and his preservation, his deliverance, so forth. It speaks of those things, but nowhere does it say in Genesis 6 to 9 that he preached. But is it fair to assume that he did preach? Yes. And Peter confirms it. 2 Peter 2, verse 5. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. He's a preacher of righteousness. In the same way, Jacob would have explained, taught, or preached to Hamor and Shechem. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been acceptable to have Dina marry Shechem.